This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, advocating for human rights around the world, a global human rights leader shares how the State Department holds violators accountable, secures the release of political prisoners, and protects vulnerable refugees. Then, how ending fossil fuel subsidies could reduce reliance on Russia's oil and gas while helping the environment. And North Korea is conducting missile tests again. What that means for the prospects of deterrence and diplomacy. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights and Labor at the State Department works to protect human rights and champion American values across the globe. Scott Busby is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights and Labor at the State Department. Scott, welcome to the program. Thanks, Mimi. Happy to be here. You've been a leading defender of human rights for nearly three decades. What drew you to a career in that field? Well, it started in college, Mimi. When I uh, entered college, apartheid in South Africa was still a big issue. And that, to me, resonated of our own uh, civil rights challenges here in the U.S. So I initially got involved in trying to figure out how best the U.S. might be able to influence the situation in South Africa. And soon after that, I spent some time in Guatemala on a study abroad program. And when I was in Guatemala, I personally observed human rights abuses. And from there on out, I was compelled to uh, work on those issues, to try to do what I could to address them. You created something called the Khashoggi Ban, which is named after the slain Washington Post columnist and Saudi dissident. What's that ban and how does it work? That ban is a policy decided on by the Secretary of State that basically says persons who are complicit in reaching outside their borders to repress dissidents, journalists, others who criticize the host government uh, are subject to a, a visa ban in the United States. Uh, so the hope was to get at not only those in Saudi Arabia who may have been complicit in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, but others around the world in governments that reach outside their borders to repress uh, people who criticize their governments. Is your office also identifying Russians accused of human rights abuses against Ukrainians? Yes, we are. And indeed, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were part of an effort to impose visa bans on over 2,500 different Russians who are involved in uh, either the uh, aggressive acts in Ukraine uh, or in uh, repression inside Russia. What progress has the State Department made in addressing China's human rights abuses? Well, we sought to address those abuses in a variety of different ways. We have uh, imposed visa restrictions on some Chinese individuals complicit in human rights abuses. Indeed, individuals involved in the very acts of transnational repression that I just described. We've also imposed economic sanctions on both Chinese officials and Chinese entities complicit in human rights abuses in China. And we've also uh, contributed to efforts to 
stop the flow of U.S. goods and services to entities inside China that may be complicit in human rights abuses. You've also called attention to human rights abuses in North Korea. What's the most concerning aspect of that situation now? Well, there are so many human rights abuses in North Korea, it's hard to highlight one. But I would say the most egregious one uh, are the people who remain in prison camps. There are several hundred thousand who are still in those prison camps. They are subject to forced labor, torture, all sorts of deprivations of their rights. And that probably is the primary issue we're focused on. But there are a wide array of human rights abuses there that are concerned to us. There's also political prisoners there and in many places uh, around the world. So in terms of securing the release of those prisoners, what influence is the State Department able to bring to bear on foreign governments? Well, there, we have a variety of tools. Obviously, we engage in diplomacy, uh, talking to those governments about our concerns and raising those concerns in multilateral fora, uh, such as the UN. But we also have a variety of carrots and sticks, uh, carrots in the form of uh, assistance, uh, meetings that other government officials uh, may want to have with our uh, senior officials, things of that nature. And then we have sticks uh, like visa restrictions, economic sanctions, uh, and our ability to withhold assistance from those governments. Scott, you were involved in imposing visa restrictions against human rights abusers of LGBTQ plus individuals in Uganda after that nation passed legislation criminalizing same-sex relationships. How do you identify the people involved? Well, it's tricky, tricky business. We uh, do rely on our embassies in those countries uh, because they are close to the ground there and they may be aware of uh, individuals complicit in abuses. Uh, we do also look to NGOs, uh, international and national, who may have identified uh, individuals complicit in human rights abuses. Authoritarianism is on the rise globally. I don't have to tell you that. And there's so many activists that are in political prisons. There's refugees that are fleeing war and oppression. How do you stay optimistic? Oh, that's a good question, Mimi. Uh, mostly by continuing our work with the people on the ground fighting these good fights. It's always inspiring to see individuals in civil society, uh, whether they're NGO activists, journalists, uh, political activists, who are fighting uh, for democracy and respect for human rights in their countries. And when you talk to people doing that sort of work in the face of horrific circumstances, uh, it really is inspiring and makes you realize that human beings want to be free. Human beings want to live in democracy. You know, I wonder, finally, Scott, if there's an issue or a case that you've worked on or focused on that's really resonated with you. Well, there are a number of individual cases. When I was uh, in law school, I worked on the case of a young Guatemalan uh, boy, really, who had fled Guatemala. Uh, because he was about to be conscripted into the military, and I helped to get him asylum, and that case still resonates with me. More recently, I helped to get asylum for the son of a very well-known Chinese dissident uh, who arrived here in the United States, was detained for a period of time. Uh, so it's those sorts of indi individual cases that often uh, are most satisfying to work on. All right. Well, Scott, we certainly appreciate your work, and I'm sure so many people around the world appreciate it as well. 
Thanks for being on the program. Thanks for having me, Mimi. Coming next on Government Matters, reducing dependence on Russian energy while saving the environment. Stay with us. The West is focused on reducing dependence on Russian oil and gas for obvious geopolitical reasons, but it's also an opportunity to go greener and reduce carbon emissions. That's according to Jeffrey Frankel. He's a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School. He's also a former member of the White House's Council of Economic Advisors. Jeff, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mimi. So your recommendations include ending fossil fuel subsidies. Explain why those subsidies were put in place in the first place and what happens if they're taken away. Well, there's a variety of, of uh, subsidies. Um, they're obviously all bad for the environment. Uh, on the uh, uh, on, on the supply side, subsidizing the supply of uh, oil or uh, natural gas, or in other countries, they subsidize uh, coal. That's obviously bad for the environment. Um, but subsidies on the demand side are especially bad for uh, not just the environment, but for uh, our goal of uh, penalizing uh, uh, Russia for its invasion of uh, Ukraine. But doesn't um, ending fuel subsidies just make energy more expensive for the com consumer? And, and then those on the lower end of the economic spectrum are going to be the ones to suffer? Well, the whole idea is to make energy more expensive, to make it pay. If you subsidize it, you're artificially keeping its price below uh, uh, what its true uh, cost is. I'm opposed to a gas tax holiday, uh, which uh, some states have done and some other countries have, have uh, re reduced uh, taxes on uh, retail uh, re refined uh, products. Um, I uh, am, am in favor of uh, nuclear, prolonging the life of nuclear power, particularly in Germany where they're closing down power plants. I'm in favor of uh, shipping more uh, LNG, liquefied natural gas, to Europe to make up for their sh shortfall when they sink, when they cut off imports from Russia of uh, piped in natural gas. But I think we need to uh, regulate the uh, natural gas, particularly the frackers uh, in the US, to uh, cut way down on the methane emissions, um, which that, that package would be good for the environment and good for their goal of uh, penalizing uh, Russia. Um, I'm, I'm in favor of the release of the reserves uh, from Mr. Actually, Trump. Jeff, I wanted to ask you about that because earlier this year, President Biden announced the release of up to a million barrels of oil per day from the nation's strategic petroleum reserves. Has that actually made a dent in global supply shortages? Well, at the time of the announcement, it had some effect on the price. Um, some people might say that's not a high percentage of the world oil market, and it is a relatively unified uh, world oil market. But at the same time, uh, our, our allies, uh, France and Germany and other uh, members of the energy information uh, uh, outfit, uh, the OECD and uh, in Paris also cut their, uh, also released reserves from their uh, strategic uh, uh, stockpilings. And the total I think is 240 million uh, a billion barrels uh, uh, over the next six months. So that, that is enough to make a dent in it. And it is what the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was uh, designed for. I think it's, sometimes it's been sort of used more for political purposes, but this is exactly the sort of thing 
uh, that uh, it was intended to accomplish. You know, as you mentioned before, the gas tax holidays, some policy member, uh, policy makers advocate for that just to ease the pain that Americans are feeling at the pump. You think that's a bad idea? I, it, I understand the temptation politically, but uh, it's a terrible economics, and I think it's something pretty much all economists would uh, agree on. Uh, you don't want to... Uh, I mean, the price of gasoline is high for a reason, and it's not some failed policies in the U.S. It's a worldwide phenomenon, and it's because uh, because of the disruptions, of, among other things, because of the disruptions of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the, and the sanctions. We don't want to encourage uh, motorists to drive more, um, which they will do if we cut the gasoline tax. Um, we want them to, uh, to the extent possible to drive less. You mentioned the effect of, uh, of high uh, gas prices and other retail prices on uh, consumers' households, including low-income households. Um, it's the lowest-income households uh, don't necessarily drive uh, much. They may uh, take public transit or whatever. But I'm in favor, regardless of uh, taking the revenue that would be raised from uh, 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 the gas tax or from, um, uh, I think, sanctions against R Russia should take the form of uh, tariff rather than just cutting off uh, uh, imports uh, of, of uh, oil and natural gas. And they, they generate, these, these have in common that they generate revenue. And we could redistribute the revenue in any way you want to low-income households to uh, make up for the effect of higher uh, energy prices on them. So just finally uh, wrapping up, uh, Professor, how do you rate the Biden administration so far on energy policy? Well, I think they've done a fairly good job uh, the, uh, on the gas tax holiday. I'm not quite sure what their position is, but I, I think uh, if they blame big oil corporations for the uh, increase in in energy prices, uh, that's not right. But people who blame Biden are not right either. It's a global phenomenon. I would give the Biden administration pretty high uh, ratings on their handling of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the, the uh, various energy and other sanctions uh, that are they've implemented in response. All right, Professor, thank you so much for being on the program. Appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Coming next, North Korea is saber-rattling yet again. We'll talk deterrence and diplomacy. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. While the world watches Russia's war on Ukraine unfold, North Korea continues to expand its nuclear weapons program and has just launched 13 missile tests just this year. Dana Kim is the Korea Policy Scholar at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Dana, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So looking at the tests just this year in 2022, what have they told us about North Korea's nuclear capability? We know that North Korea's nuclear capabilities continue to grow. Um, the fact that they've launched so many missiles this year also tells us that they continue to fine tune their strike capabilities. Not only have we seen ICBM tests, we also have seen a lot of SRBM tests, uh, short range missiles. And what's really significant about this is that ICBMs, first of all, can reach the east coast of the United States, and we know this. The frequency of the short-range tests, again, shows us that they continue to fine-tune their strike capabilities, and that's very concerning because this, these missiles have the capability to strike South Korea and Japan. 
Um, and all together, these are, are contributing to their general uh, a strategy, nuclear strategy and missile strategy. So Dana, does North Korea have hypersonic missiles? They do. Um, Kim Jong-un outlined plans for weapons and military modernization at the Workers' Party Congress earlier this year. And this includes, but is not limited to, hypersonic missiles, solid fuel ICBMs, and nuclear-powered submarines. Um, while we don't know exactly the nature of these hypersonic missiles that they may possess, we know that it's in progress. We know that they're developing these missiles, and that's very significant. So why are they conducting these tests? What are they hoping to accomplish? So there's, there's a couple of reasons. Um, like I said, weapons modernization is a big part of it. Uh, again, this is significant because Kim Jong-un explicitly uh, said this earlier this year. Um, a different reason, another reason could be for attention, to put it quite simply. With the war happening in Ukraine, North Korea continues to find ways of putting itself on the front burner. Uh, the re regime's recent release of highly edited missile videos is very indicative of this. <clears throat> He's trying to, Kim Jong-un is trying to bring back attention to this side of the world. Um, and he's trying to draw the attention back into North, back to North Korea's military capabilities, both home and abroad. Um, finally, this could be a pressure campaign. Uh, North Korea could be ramping up provocations with the incoming, well now, uh, conservative gov government in South Korea, uh, which ran on a foreign policy platform of being more aligned with the U.S., uh, resuming U.S. ROK military exercises, and especially with the um, Biden Yoon summit happening this week, this could all be part of a pressure campaign. So what should we expect from that new South Korean president uh, and his administration with respect to their relations with the North? Well, uh, the UN administration has said that they are, are going to take a more hardliner stance against North Korea than um, the, moon, the previous Moon administration. We also know that the UN administration is very, very much willing to stay aligned with the United States. And so when we look at President Biden's North Korea strategy, it's a happy medium between President Trump's strategy and President Obama's strategy. Whereas President Trump took a every, everything for everything type of approach, um, President Obama took a nothing for nothing type of approach. And what we can see with President Biden or what we can expect is more of a step-by-step -step approach towards North Korea. Um, concessions for uh, steps towards denuclearization. So we can expect the UN administration to uh, be aligned with that. So what lessons do you think the North Korean leader has taken from Russia's war on Ukraine, if anything? I think, if anything, from this war, he's realized that he needs to bring the attention back to him. Um, he knows what Russia is thinking. He knows what China is thinking. And at least in, in terms of China, China is not going to uh, come cracking down hard on North Korea right now because what China really cares about right now, especially with the war in Ukraine, is maintaining regional stability. Um, and as North Korea continu continues to conduct weapons tests, the United States is going to, to have to pay attention, as is South Korea, and China is going to lay, lay low and, and watch um, the situation before it acts. So we can expect China to kind of be on the back burner for now. Um, and also, we know that Kim Jong-un has now announced new COVID cases 
within the country. That's significant because that could be for a number of reasons, and we don't know what those reasons are quite yet, but it could all be, again, part of the pressure campaign, because now with human rights concerns being raised in North Korea, um, the world is going to have to pay attention again. What about North Korea's biological and chemical weapons program? Are they continuing to develop those weapons? We can expect that they are continuing to develop them, even though they're not explicitly stated by the regime and state media, um, even though they're not quite things that we can easily observe using tools such as satellite imagery. We, can ex we should expect that they do continue to develop these. So just wrapping up, what are the chances for a diplomatic breakthrough with North Korea? Right now, it's difficult because we're clearly at an impasse. North Korea continues to uh, test its missiles. Um, we, we're not seeing signs of a significant nuclear, nuclear test yet. Kim Jong-un has threatened it, but and we have seen some activity through satellite imagery at the Pungeri nuclear test site. It's not activity that's significant enough to really signal that they're gearing up for a nuclear test, but really what we can do right now is to try to bring them back to the negotiating table. Um, the United States has has stated multiple times that they are willing to, uh, to come to talks with North Korea with no preconditions. And the entire world is urging North Korea to come to the table with to, um, for talks with the United States and South Korea. So all we can really do is, is watch for now. All right. Well, Dana, thank you so much for being on the program. Appreciate you making the time. Thank you so much, Mimi. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gargis. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is. It is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. 
we sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.